0: From the studio of KPSU Portland in an association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians. So thank you for joining us. I'm Lily. And I'm Madeline.
1: And welcome to Beyond Footnotes. Today we're interviewing Courtney Gilk. Courtney is a program manager at Confluence, a nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. She has a BS in anthropology from the University of Colorado and an MA in museum studies from the University of Nebraska. Thank you so much for joining us, Courtney. And full disclosure, I have a pleasure of working with her. So, yeah. Full disclosure,
0: Lily's pretty great to work with. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So, to start, do you want to just tell us a bit about your background? What led you to be interested in anthropology and what led you to where you're working
2: now? Sure. Um, You know, background, you know, I just always go back to growing up and the people and places, I guess, that influenced me. Um, And and I just see the tie, you know, the tie that goes from, you know, childhood time with my grandmother, Maxine Rosemary Fletcher, and Mm. her really artistic... Um, unique eye. She lived in a small town in Nebraska called Grand Island and she loved texture and color and objects and anything with a really good story. And, um, and so I just uh, had a really close relationship with her and uh, just kind of fell in love with objects and the stories about the places and sort of the people that they came from with a really great artistic slant to it if that makes any sense and on my dad's side of the family again uh smaller towns in nebraska um we'd always just sit around the table and listen to aunts and uncles and grandparents and great aunts and uncles talk about the you know their lives and their times and the the trials and tribulations of being farmers and living in small town nebraska and um those were just really strong influences and got me thinking about people and communities and family and how it all comes together and that's kind of stuck with me throughout the years. Um, And and then you know uh, getting older, uh, formative years in Colorado, um, somehow in high school picked up, um, I can't remember which class it would have been, but picked up a copy of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee Mm -hmm. and just was blown out of the water uh, by that book. I know over the years it's, you know, been um, poked out quite a bit for understandable reasons. But it was still pretty pivotal, pivotal in uh, in my life in terms of thinking about what came before my Nebraska ancestors and uh, and the injustices that occurred with Native Americans. Uh, and living in the in Colorado, then, and visiting down in the Four Corners area, uh, for me, discovering all of the architectural remnants of these cultures that had been present and still were, but being described as uh, cultures that had, you know, disbanded, starved, and essentially disappeared—the mystery of the Anasazi of the Four Corners. Um, so. Th- those themes resonated with me and came up later in life not necessarily during my studies as much but still sat with me and have really uh come through and and helped me find pretty fairly good job satisfaction <laughs> currently now with confluence I guess but I'll get to that later uh, yeah and so anthropology just seemed like you know you had mentioned here in in this sheet you you guys are what but you call yourselves, geeky historians? yes,' that <laughs> is a very apt
0: description and, yeah.
2: and the difference between you know history and anthropology and, and, and that was true. you know history was great, but to me in high school and y- you know younger ages, history was mm-hmm. dates and right. battles and politics, and anthropology was so much richer and more uh, you know about people and story and place, and that resonated so a stab at an undergrad in anthropology um, and loved it uh, you know the process was pretty straightforward just like any mm-hmm. other degree you apply you hopefully get accepted and do your coursework and do well at it but what really um, made the difference for me was the uh, taking advantage of um, undergraduate research opportunities mm-hmm. um, internships and that really obviously makes coursework come alive and is a place to apply that and really just expand your understanding and appreciation and just get a sense of what, what it's like in the working world once you're out of school and, and you know, trying to imagine yourself doing that for years and where could it take you was really great. You know, this, the audience listening to this is students, and I think this is one thing, uh, you know, often when you talk to people that are older, you ask them, you know, kind of what lessons had they learned? Is there anything that they would do differently? And um, I started my undergraduate career at a pretty small school um, in the Four Corners called Fort Lewis. Um, and uh, I did that because I didn't want to go to school, <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to take a year off, and my parents would not have that and i wasn't really um i didn't have the grades to go out of state um, or the money and so i didn't i just thought i'd try try this and and see and maybe get my grades up and then try out of state Um, so i went there for two years and realized i did want to go to school and i transferred up to university of colorado and got more serious about my studies and that's when I really got involved in the internships. But back to that, um, one way to think about things, I think, in undergrad is I think I thought a little bit too much more, uh, uh, much uh, about the actual, the school itself and how that would look on paper mm-hmm. versus the type of experience that you can get applying your education to, um, you know, seasonal the summer work or internships. You know, I left the Four Corners area, which was so rich and abundant mm-hmm. with, um, anthropological opportunities <laughs> for undergrads with uh, the archaeology down there, but also with the, you know, the, um, um, the the different pueblos and the Navajo and what have you down there. I could have done interesting things there. I don't regret it. It was it's just something that I think back on about my, how I viewed schools and what I should graduate with. Um, it's just something that I might have taken more time to consider maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was undergrad.
1: Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so that, that makes a lot of sense, like what you said, like valuing the uh, experience itself rather than the school. I mean.
2: Yeah, exactly. You yeah.
1: Know, yeah. And like, you know, Harvard, for example, maybe.
2: Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I can't remember, I'm terrible, I can't remember the author. I want to say it's Malcolm Gladwell, but mm. someone in the last handful of years wrote a book and they were talking about um, students that work so hard to get to Ivy League schools and they might not be the best they're not the best students mm-hmm. but they think that as long as you know they get to that Ivy League school and it actually in the long run often students can do better at a school that doesn't have the reputation because yeah. they get somewhere where they actually can uh, they don't have to compete as much mm-hmm. and so there's room for them to do more and they actually come out ahead and in a way, look better on paper because they yeah. were a better student at that school. I think that makes sense. Well, yeah.
1: I guess the other question is, um, what was the process of getting a master's degree in museum studies
2: like? Which is
1: something that a lot of his history majors are interested in yeah. as well. So,
2: well, in and yeah. in, in, in these fields, you know, unless you you know that you want to be in academia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, history, anthropology, museum studies or museo- museology is it's. it's it's that question of what are you really, you know, didn't do your parents ask you this? My parents ask me this all the time <laughs> what, of what are you going to do with an undergrad in anthropology? Uh, and I didn't really know how to answer that, <laughs> yeah. um, so I spent a handful of years waitressing. It was really great and <laughs> and uh, traveling, and um, then decided I, it was time to get serious and figure out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And it felt like museum studies was sort of you know applied would be applying mm-hmm. a bit of that anthropology and, and, and my interests to some to a more specific job title mm-hmm. with a brick and mortar building right. <laughs> with a regular schedule but i mean that 's the practical side of it, but truthfully, museum studies goes back again to um, how much I loved spending time with my grandmother and how mm-hmm. I think the power for me of material objects to um, just be imbued with meaning and symbolism and and uh, storytelling mm-hmm. and what they can teach you about a people, place, or time. So I, th- I see museums, I really really value museums and I th- I think they're just incredible institutions that have so much capacity to speak to such a breadth of people in different ways because of what we bring to them when we walk in the doors and how we'll each respond and react to you know, their collections. Yeah. So I applied, I got accepted, I did the coursework. <laughs> and just like undergrad, really, it's uh, just so important to, you know, talk to those professors, speak with the curators at the museums, just mm-hmm. see what opportunities there are to expand your education beyond the, you know, coursework. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So after that, you ended up doing field research with different rock art in Wyoming, and Arizona, Colorado, and Zimbabwe. Do
2: you want to talk a little bit about the fieldwork experience? Yeah, well, that that was actually in between the two degrees. Okay. So, um, so towards the end of my undergrad, I decided um, to do a semester abroad um, in Zimbabwe, and. It was with a school called the um, School for International Training out of Brattleboro, Vermont. And what w- was really appealing about that program was one that they did studies in, um, in places that weren't as, as popular, you know, more of the European countries, mm-hmm. had really great programs. And the way that the, um, the coursework went, uh, you didn't necessarily just transfer to another school in another country. But you were with a group of students, you had your director, and the director essentially curated your educational experience by, um, let's see, different, you could call them s- series of workshops or sessions with anyone from artists to politicians to um freedom you know in zimbabwe they um, gained independence in 1980 and i was there in 1990 and so you you still had really lovely access to a lot of the freedom fighters and uh you know that firsthand opportunity to speak with people who had gone through the revolution And then at the end of the program, they gave you six weeks to do an independent study, which you could clearly apply to whatever it was you were working on at your school back at home. Um, In the beginning of our semester, I had met a uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Garlake, Peter Garlake, who had been doing rock art research in Zimbabwe the last few years. And uh, he took our our group out for a day. to different rock art sites and it was absolutely, it blew my mind. You know, it was, I think it was pretty much our first day out in the bush, so to speak, after arriving in Zimbabwe. So we were all just, you know, like excited little kids on Christmas morning. Anything and everything was new and amazing. But to get to go to these incredible um, granite monoliths with these you know, overhangs that they, you know, we call caves, and then have prehistoric rock art, you know, on the walls was pretty Mm -hmm. mind-blowing. So I approached uh, Peter at the end of our time, of our semester, asked him if he needed any, any help in the field at all, and he was starting to get on in years and wanting to sort of shift the way he was doing his analysis of the paintings and instead of looking at sections of large painted panels or individual um, paintings, he wanted to have an entire cave documented. And he was just too old, and it'd be too uncomfortable for him, and he just wasn't social enough (laughs) to really (laughs) spend time with commercial farmers or, in the villages, you know, sleeping in empty concrete rooms or huts, and so he thought, "Well, how old was I? Gosh, 18. Oh, wow! An 18-year-old from the states who was hungry for adventure would be the perfect <laughs> uh, field student, mm-hmm. and I was. <laughs> I was the perfect field student. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, that, the first uh, cave I worked on." I stayed with a, uh, before Zimbabwe was independent, it was Rhodesia, a British colony, and um, that colonial legacy was was thick and strong and very much alive, and I stayed on this very wealthy, very large-scale commercial farm, um, and would spend my days trekking up one of those granite hills, uh, you know, tracing a cave. I'm not going go to go into the details. It's a, it's a technique that is is very highly frowned upon now these days. Uh, this, this really di- is crazy, but it was before digital photography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, literally, literally digital photography was just a couple years away. But um, at that point in time, photography couldn't really capture the layers, the overlays of paint. In any way that made sense to someone trying to analyze the images, um, and, and and tracing made the most sense. So it was an incredible experience, and and the work itself—getting to spend hours upon hours upon hours um, in s- such lovely proximity with these paintings—I c- I could go on about it, but it it. At times, I felt like I transcended time itself and was there with the artists. You could still see their brushstrokes, and mm. these were late Stone Age, so anywhere from two to 10,000-year-old you know, paintings. Um, but that was super, it, it was super successful project. Peter was really delighted with the work that came from that. Um, I loved the experience. I went back to the States uh, finished my schoolwork in Boulder and he asked if I would want to come back and uh, do some more work. So a few years later I went back, spent six months, um, did more caves and you know stayed in the village settings, stayed with more commercial farmers. It was always a different situation. Um, a book came out from the work that we did and i went back a third time after that um after the book came out and so that was essentially my 20s so it was full of really great adventure i traveled around africa had this incredible rock art experience um again like looking back on that is there anything i would have done differently i think i would have uh i would have tried to have um made more professional, I think, connections um, from that. I, I, uh, I would have forced myself to put myself out there a little bit more, maybe, um, to try, you know, it, it, um, to try and put myself, I guess, in a um, better place for what would come next mm-hmm. in, in my, you know, professional career. But there you're just thinking about that. I just, you know, I enjoyed the experience so much and uh, anytime you can try and think about, well, what do I need to do now that will help me make connections or get somewhere I, I need to go later is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, and then um, that's when I decided, you know, I finished up with that, came back to the States. I was like, all right, time to get serious. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I went back to school for museum studies.
0: Mm-hmm. I can understand when you're Exploring yeah. Africa, then it might be really hard to think about
2: yeah. anything other than that amazing experience. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> so. It was, it was, it was really, yeah. I feel like incredibly lucky. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, the museum studies, it was it was good. I went to the University of Nebraska for that. They had a really strong program, mm-hmm. they were excellent professors. It was really good training. You know, it's a it, two year program, so it was kind of a, you know, uh, gosh, potpourri, of, you know, of uh, dabbling in the different, you know, fields of what it takes to work in a museum. At that point, you know, I was, I was pretty set on uh, the education and programming side of things, but really loved, obviously, the work with exhibit design and development. Collections management is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I just adored it and loved those um, classes because I really love material culture and so got to work with some good collections there and do some great research projects. Um, and did an internship with the Museum of Nebraska History, mm-hmm. which was nice uh, to start. That was the first time I started thinking about um, about really developing museum programming. And it was fun in Zimbabwe, actually. I, I did quite a bit of that, because I spent so, many t- so much time out in the village areas, and I was definitely, I definitely stood out um, and attracted a lot of attention from young people so as soon as school was out they you know i I would have quite an audience and i made a lot of really young friends and they didn't really know what to make they didn't have any background knowledge or have any familiarity with the paintings so we had a lot of fun talking about symbols and what symbols are and what kind of symbols are in their lives and how do they express themselves and their culture and applying that to the paintings and you know lots of fun ways picking up bits of pigment around the village areas and making our own paintings not on the rock walls though <laughs> oh, that's good no. <laughs> oh yeah so after zimbabwe yeah so that was it the other the in in colorado again yeah. that was a, a, just a stroke of luck a friend was up in Estes Park Colorado in a bookstore and standing next to someone they struck up a conversation um, somehow she mentioned that I had just come back from Zimbabwe doing rock art he said oh that's funny I'm a rock art researcher <laughs> and uh, and through that it, um, interaction I was I was introduced to a professor out of uh, University of New Mexico who um, continues to run uh, a lot of rock art research projects in the southwest and that was fantastic larry loendorf is his name um mm-hmm. and that brought again se- very very seasonal work in um, canyon de in arizona uh outside of dubois wyoming and down in southeastern colorado and it was during those that's when i you know i was getting into the mid to late late-ish, almost late 20s, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was like, oh, I'm tired, what am I going to do with the rest <laughs> of my life, this seasonal work, and, yeah. um, and, again, needing to start, a, start to really think about what I was going to do with myself, and went back to grad school.
1: Can you tell us about your current role, uh, at Confluence? Sure. Which, I mean, I know a lot about it, but. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so, let's see, so I, uh, after grad school, mm-hmm. um, dear friends that I had met in undergrad had moved out to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would never, I never, I just couldn't understand why they moved here because of the weather. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Rocky Mountains are, you know, the best. The weather's amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt so sorry for them. But what I realized years later was you know through their 20s they had come here and settled in a really neat town small city and uh were becoming young adults and finding good work and meeting good friends and living a really nice life so i came out checked things out thought it looked pretty wonderful and uh Still applied to grad school, but moved out here while I kind of did that work and and waited to hear, and then came back as soon as I finished grad school. Um, the summer between my two years in grad school, I came out to Portland and uh, got an internship at OMSI, mm-hmm. um, which I was very, very happy to have come into my world. You know, science wasn't necessarily... My field um, in science education, you know, definitely not, but uh, OMSI is an amazing organization. And working in the outreach, the the internship was working um, with the outreach department on revamping a lot of their classes and curriculum. And coming from grad school and the work I was doing in programming, going to a science museum Mm -hmm. is really a great place to go deep with curriculum development in um, in, an informal setting. Just great research, incredible hands-on opportunities, and just incredible breadth of of subject matter to work with. So I I really appreciated that. That turned into a job when I graduated and I was in the outreach department. I was at OMSI probably for, you know, if you count that summer, at least four or five years or so. Um, and uh, let's see after so uh, confluence so um took some time off started having some got married started having kids (laughs) Um, and really um, as great as OMSI was really really missed the anthropological side Mm -hmm. of my work and uh, started reaching out to the Portland Art Museum at that point in time. There was a curator of the Native American art collection named Bill Mm -hmm. Mercer, who was super helpful. I really appreciated my coffees and conversations with Bill. And he um, clued me in on something called this Cathapodal Plank House project Mm -hmm. that was happening up in Ridgefield, Washington and the beauty of that was that it wasn't just sort of a static cultural heritage monument or site what was really intriguing about it was it was being done in partnership um, not only with PSU archaeology and Fish and Wildlife but with the Chinook Nation Um, so it was a a living you know testament Mm -hmm. to culture and not just a testament to culture but a place where the chinook were actually using to help you know reinforce sustain and celebrate their culture Um, and to be able to support work like that and and share that with children and other people and other visitors who would come to the plank house um, was the first time that i really had that that feeling that you know my love of the past and of material objects and of art and the stories that go with it—we're doing so much more than just um, feeding people's curiosity or interest, but the sort of the um, the thrill of helping support sustain indigenous culture was you know it was really. Mm-hmm the money (laughs) i guess you could say and had me hooked um and then i had to leave i had another baby um took a little bit of time off and we were just telling the story just before the show started so i'll throw it in (laughs) but uh i was taking my kids back to denver to visit family we were in at pdx and we were walking down one of the aisles uh the hallways And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a woman drop a scarf, and so I just started walking over there to pick it up. And someone else was coming from the other direction. We both kind of laughed and, you know, ran into each other as we were sort of picking up the scarf, and it happened to be Donna Sinclair from the Mm -hmm. Public History Department here. And uh, we had worked together at the Plank House on a project and uh, just had a really nice time catching up. I was starting to say, yeah, I'm, you know, starting to think about, you know, when am I going to get back to work? She's like, oh, well, that's, that's funny because I was just going to ask you if you were starting to think about going back to work, because the Confluence Project is looking for people, and I had heard of the Confluence Project. Um, Lily, Lily didn't introduce the Confluence Project. She, oh. meant that our mission is to connect people to place through art and education. Yes. but um, it, the Confluence it used to be the confluence project started out as a sort of of a legacy as a legacy project Mm -hmm. connected to the lewis and clark bicentennial um with the side note that it it had ambitions to do a little bit more than just to celebrate and honor and explore the lewis and clark expedition what it really wanted to do is um, expand and tell a more inclusive story about the people and the environment that. Lewis and Clark traveled through and met with on their journey, and not just at that point in time, but to do something that would help people realize, number one, that the environment was a very different place then, and that the people that Lewis and Clark encountered were plentiful and numerous mm-hmm. and all over this river, and that, more importantly, that they're still very much here. Um, and that was that's the intent of Confluence, and so gosh, that was back in you know before 2000, um, and here we are in 2018. Um, Confluence does their work through different art installations and landscape mm-hmm. installations along the Columbia at what we say are sites of significance. These are sites that have been sites of human habitation for thousands and thousands of years, and al- also have a capacity to tell an environmental story that transcends the millennia Um, and why do we do this we've broadened the mission um, to say to connect people to place through art being the installations Mm. and other aspects of the work we do um, and education so my job so I I got the job with Confluence and this is about six and a half years ago now and it's just been a fascinating journey of 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 evolving with an ever evolving nonprofit. Uh, when project when Confluence started, it was um, intended to get these art sites built, and then give them away to the communities or the institutions that had the interest and ability to take them on, and just sunset as an organization. Um, and as It got to a place, this was around 2007, 2008, to start having, to really um, start making those arrangements. There were partners at the table to do this, but the economy collapsed. People were backing away left and right. Um, And I think at that time, too, the organization, this was before my time, was really beginning to realize that by handing these sites off, it was breaking up the project and that Mm -hmm. the integrity of the story it was trying to tell, of what it was trying to impart would be really compromised because basically the trajectory of each site would go off in a different way and receive different levels of attention. They would, It wouldn't be a cohesive project anymore. Um, so I came on board in 2011 and since then have just been working to try and find out Um, what it means to be a a sustained organization (laughs) and what it means to provide uh, public programming um, at sites like this and to the larger communities along the river that help people understand more about these cultures, these Columbia River Indian cultures that are still with us today, thriving and ever-growing.
1: Um, could you give us, like, an example of some of the programming Confluence does?
2: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to use this to make a plug. for <laughs> Yes, <laughs> plug <on the> <laughs> please, please. Um, We're going to be piloting our first Confluence road mm-hmm. trip this summer. Um, so if any of you are interested, um, call Courtney at Confluence, 360-693-0123. The trip's going to be July thirteenth through the fifteenth, and we're only biting off the lower Columbia for this trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, basically, it's it, it, I just I'm just so thrilled with the lineup of speakers yeah, that amazing. we got. For it. Oh, it's incredible! Mm-hmm. We're going to be out at the Sandy River Delta um, in Troutdale on a Friday late afternoon, uh, Friday with uh, Michael Karnosh, who is the Seated Lands Manager for the Grand Ronde Tribe, Greg Archuleta, who teaches Lifeways um, classes for the Grand Ronde and is just uh, an incredibly Mm -hmm. knowledgeable um, artist in his own right, but also a traditional educator, and Bill Weiler from the Sandy River Watershed Council, and we'll be walking and talking about evolving land ethic and exploring the confluence site out there as well with a really great dinner at a super cute place called the historic cedar house beforehand Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll be meeting at fort vancouver at the confluence land bridge uh, that saturday morning Um, and i'm thrilled to say we have uh, lillian pitt Mm. the highly celebrated uh, you know native american artist joining us who a lot of her Artwork is uh, the public artwork along the land bridge. And uh, Dr. Christine Dupree, who uh, wrote a really fascinating book called Being Cowlitz and Exploring and Creating and Sustaining Cowlitz Identity. Um, they'll be joining us for the land bridge part of the walk and then we'll be joined by uh, Doug Wilson, again, who's an uh, archeologist associated with PSU. For a really deep dive into the archaeology at Fort Vancouver, and we'll all have a meal together at the Grant House. Um, heading out to Cape Disappointment to see the confluence work, but more, um, more in- even more interesting than the confluence work <laughs> will be—we've um, um, been invited by the Chinook Indian Nation to have a salmon bake with them that yeah. Saturday night up in Bay Center at their headquarters. Um, and tony johnson the uh, chinook nation chair will be taking us down to the old village site and then we'll all head back down to cape disappointment for a tour on sunday morning but again it, i think i went into great detail on the itinerary not yes. to try and sell to tell sell you but just to use that i guess as an example of of the way that confluence is really trying to Connect people who are interested in a much deeper and richer story about culture and people along the river mm-hmm. um, to these unique places. And it's not done through just these art installations, of course not. The art installations are there because of the type of work that the people are doing, mm-hmm. because of the meaning and the stories that have been growing and evolving from this land, um, and coming out through very contemporary voices. Um, it's just really, it's a really wonderful opportunity. So that's something we have coming up. Uh, last year we also started something called Story Gatherings, yeah. which was really meaningful, really exciting programming we did. Um, we, a couple colleagues, had been working on collecting uh, interviews with tribal elders mm. and culture bearers from homelands along the river associated with, with places where confluence sites are. And this was intended really to just um, add into our website for educational purposes. But the quality, Northwest Documentary um, produced these, the quality, the richness of these interviews and these stories was just really moving. And we knew we had to do so much more than just put it on our website or put it um, in an archive. We really needed to get these out there more. So we decided to take them on the road but to make them something um, more conversational and to help put them in a better—or not a better—sorry, but in a bigger context, mm-hmm. um, we, for each story gathering, would invite different speakers from Indian country. Be them, you know, council members or artists or cultural institute directors or let's see who else. Um, Um, Academics, academics, historians, historians, poets, Elizabeth, so we had Elizabeth Woody, Oregon Oregon Port Laureate, laureate, yeah, yeah, um, uh, David Lewis, Mm -hmm. um, Grand Round historian, we had Chuck Sams from Umatilla, we had uh, Jamie Pinkham, who Mm -hmm. heads up CRITVIC, the Columbia Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, uh, bobby connor mm-hmm. from temuskalate cultural institute it's just astounding astounding lineup of speakers and you know i started saying how how rich and amazing these videos were and they absolutely were people were mesmerized by them and then you combine that with the the power and the passion of these speakers they just made for really incredible opportunities for audience members to just get a really deep and meaningful dive into personal stories, but then also the larger stories of Indian country along the river and the opportunity to converse, discuss, and ask questions to really knowledgeable people.
1: And every story gathering was unique because, you know, we have slightly different panelists and slightly different clips. So if there's a similar setup, you'd get a totally different experience every time.
2: Every single yeah. time, wasn't it? They That's just amazing. had really amazing, yeah. you know, characters of their own, each one. I agree. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, we'll be sure to post like all the complex yes, projects and everything. There'll be a link on our show page, kpsu. dot org slash beyond footnotes. What advice
1: would you give to students like history or anthropology that are interested in going into like museum studies or like programs programming specifically? Like what you did. Like are there any like um, specific advice you would give to people interested in the path that you, the uh, result that you got, kind of?
2: Sense. Well, I think from an anthropological standpoint, mm-hmm. if you are dealing with uh, mm-hmm. um, subject matter or you know themes about cultures that aren't your own, yeah you you know op- y- your first thing is to find people from those cultures yes. and those backgrounds who can do that work for you, who can do the educating, who can mm-hmm. impart the stories, the lessons. The skills, because it's their story, yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah. Um, let's see f- so for museum programming i mean that's that's my that's what I would say mm-hmm. um, again it's it's uh you know the the world has obviously changed quite a bit since I was in school, and I think uh, you know coursework has caught up with that uh, I feel like I you know, I, I feel like I did my studies in an era <laughs> that was still um it's still very post colonial influenced, right? Yeah. Academia is. Yeah, even now. Like, even
1: now.
2: Even now, yeah. but at least we're talking about these things. Right. Now. We're addressing it a lot you more know, Objective. Yeah, when I was when I was an undergrad in the in the four corners mm-hmm. of the United States, in the you know, the the epicenter of 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 Anasazi culture and the pueblos, you know, pueblos that still had existing communities were just a handful of miles away. The main storyline was that these cultures just basically disappeared. Drought hit, they died, and they disappeared, and nobody really knew what happened to them. And yet, the Zuni, the Hopi, right. the Pueblo Indians were all still living <laughs> like that. in the valley. And, that, and, and yes, people were saying, you know, a lot of people are saying that these are the distant relatives. So that realization was star- starting to be acknowledged, but um, yeah. yeah, it's come a long way, unfortunately, ne- that's necessarily. So I, I, don't, um, I don't know. I don't really know. I think that's very
1: good advice. Like, you need to seek out people. If you're studying another culture, you have to be in contact with the people that are yeah. that culture.
2: Right. Just, and then yeah. obviously in programming, too, you right. have to realize you're serving a very vast array right. of, of needs and backgrounds, too. Yeah. so Makes sense. You know, we're in a world of inclusion. Right. Thank God. So yeah. just make sure you are doing your best to address that. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to
1: add or... No, thank you so much for asking yeah, thank me. You. Thank you. The really nice. I'm flattered. So um, Beyond Footnotes is produced by the students of PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous, previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu slash footnotes or soundcloud.com. Thank you.
0: Thank you.